You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Thank you so much, Spot On listeners and viewers, for um, coming into this episode, you know, um, am I too young to get prediabetes? You know, the answer is uh, unfortunately no. And um, I tell you something, this is so startling. You know, uh, about uh, 35 million Americans have diabetes, but that's, you know, that's, you think that's shocking? 88 million have this thing called pre-diabetes, which I'm going to talk about today. And more importantly, what is it was eye-opening to me is I found out that one out of five youth have pre-diabetes. People from ages 12 to 19 have pre-diabetes. And you say one out of five, and you say, uh-uh. But then, you know, I put on my shopping hat and that's 20%, okay? And that becomes a higher number to me than, you know, just one out of five. So I said, that's it. We are going to talk about prediabetes. We're going to figure out what's going on. And of course, um, I, I go for only the gurus. And today my guest is the guru when it comes to prediabetes. She has actually been on Spot On before because she's so fabulous. But Miss Lauren Harris Pincus, she's a registered dietitian. She's a nutrition communicator. She has a a, a business um, owner of Nutrition, Nutrition Starring You, which I love it. But more importantly, look the author of a whole book on prediabetes, the Everything uh, Easy, there you go, the Everything Easy Prediabetes Cookbook. Um, it talks about prediabetes, but more importantly, which I absolutely love about it, it helps you to implement what we're going to talk about today. And with that, Miss Lauren, thank you so much for coming on Spot On. Oh, hi, Joan. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back on the podcast, especially talking about something I'm so passionate about. Right. And that book just came out, right? That was what, 20... The end of 2021. Right. That that just came out. That's that's hot. Okay. Missy, I know pre-diabetes, 88 million. I'm like, whoa. And, you know, I know with pre-diabetes that if you don't do something, you know, about it, um, you know, within five years, you may end up getting diabetes. So so I know that, but my, my, my audience does not. So can you explain to everybody what is pre-diabetes? The crazy thing is that the latest stats that came out this year is that it's 96 million people. So it's not even 88, it's even more, which is really sort of, I don't know, stress inducing and 96 Let's, million American adults have about 38% of the adult population over 18, which is just like wild bonkers to me. But the thing that gets me more than anything is more than 80% of those people don't know they have it. Right. 80% of 96 million people. Well, let me get a calculator. Let me get a calculator because that's like crazy. Oh my goodness gracious. Wow. Okay. I, I'm like a little speechless now. Okay. So just tell, tell everybody what is pre-diabetes versus diabetes. Pre-diabetes really in a nutshell is when your blood sugar level is 
higher than normal, but right. not high enough to be diagnosed with diabetes. So there's that kind of window that we used to call borderline right. back in the day. Yeah. Um, and basically we're looking at a test called a hemoglobin A1C. And that test is a two to three month average of your blood sugar. So instead of that, that glucose level that you get when you go to your doctor or like right. a finger stick that you get, that's a, a snapshot of one second in time that, that your blood was taken. This really gives you that three month average. So you get a much better indicator of what your blood sugar is doing uh, consistently. So that number comes in a percentage form. And okay. so 5.6 or less is considered normal. All right. 5.7 to 6.4 is considered in the, in the pre-diabetes range and 6.5% and higher is considered having diabetes. Right. So we're talking here, 96 million Americans have right. somewhere in that 5.7 to 6.4 range and 80% don't know it. But here's the thing. Yeah. People think that, you know, once your blood sugar starts to creep up, that that's the beginning of a problem, but it's the signal of a problem, but it's been going on for a long time mm -hmm. because behind the scenes, your pancreas has been working overtime for probably a decade or so to pump up enough insulin to be able to clear that extra blood sugar out of your blood but we develop something called insulin resistance, which means that you need more and more and more insulin in order to get that insulin out of your blood and into your cells. It's like a right. lock and key situation, right? right. So, uh, oh, so that helps the cells pick it up, it helps the cells. Insulin will help the cell. And it unlocks the door and opens the door. Okay, and, 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 and the glucose goes in. Okay, yep. The problem is that we develop what's called insulin resistance. So you need more and more and more knocking on that door to get the door open. And then by the time your blood sugar goes up, your pancreas is already getting tired. It's already yeah. been producing so much extra insulin that it's not working appropriately anymore. And that's when your numbers start to go up. So it's not actually the beginning of the problem. It's your signal. Right. It's your sign, your indicator that there is a problem. So people, you know, so many doctors kind of go, hey, your sugar was a little high. Just watch it. Yeah. Hey, your sugar right. was a little high. Don't eat carbs. You know, and it's really nothing to ignore or postpone or delay because from what we understand, the quicker you do something about it, the much more likely you are to be able to control it or reverse it and prevent that, that actual development of diabetes eventually. Right. So it sounds like, you know, you're, it, it's not high enough. Your blood sugars are not high enough to be diabetes, but they're, they're getting there. But more importantly, you are wearing out that poor little pancreas of yours and banging it out there. And so if you don't do something about it, it, it you're going to wear it out and then it goes into diabetes. You know, uh, I, I, I've always said, Lauren, it, it's a shame that every time you're blood glucose is out, you know, chronically elevated. Too bad there wasn't a little like, ding that go, you know, a little like, that goes off. Yeah, all the, the time. Because it's silent. When we, when I said 80% or more right. of people don't know it, it's because it's silent. It's these silent diseases that end up causing us so much strife. It's the high blood pressure, it's the high cholesterol, the high blood sugar, the things that only tests and doctors can tell you that you have, but yet underneath they're doing so much potential harm 
and damage before you figure out to do something. Right. You know, Lauren, that's why I'm having you on here because, you know, young folks, the whole statistic 12 to 19, and even young adults in the 20s and 30s, a lot of them don't go to doctors. They go to doctors when they're sick. You know what I mean? But, so they don't go on a regular basis for an annual physical to say, for for the, the physician to say, you know, your blood glucose is creeping. It's, it's not good. So you may go, right, Lauren? You may go like a decade or two and not realize that you have prediabetes. And by doing that, we just talked about, okay, we're going to wipe out and, and exhaust our pancreas. But is, isn't like some things happening like uh, uh, in your body while your blood sugars are, are not as high enough to be diabetes, but not normal? Isn't yucky stuff going on in your body? Potentially, yes. So I like to use the metaphor of having sand in your socks. And you know how miserable that is if you have sand in your socks, like rubbing between your toes. It's that grating, grainy, like discomfort. So you have to picture when you have an elevated blood sugar in your blood vessels, it's irritating. Mm -hmm. So it's similar to that sand in your socks. So Mm. if you can imagine the inside of your blood vessels constantly being kind of scratched and nicked and irritated by all of that extra blood sugar, then what happens is it causes inflammation and it causes damage to those vessels. And you know, when you scratch yourself and you have inflammation, you do a big scratch with your fingernail, it gets red, it gets a little inflamed. Then like blood cells and stuff flock to try and fix it, right? And that's when plaque starts to stick to arteries. And mm. that's when we start to have potential damage in our eyes, vision right. loss, damage right. to kidneys, damage to the nerves in our feet. Um, potential amputations and cardiovascular disease risk for stroke. It's, it's no joke. The things that can happen when you have a chronically elevated blood sugar. And the problem is one, a lot of people don't know, right. Two, it can start to happen before you have diabetes. Mm -hmm. Prediabetes doesn't mean that you're not um, able to develop some of these complications early. And the longer it goes, the harder it is to protect that pancreas and get it back to functioning. Right. Right. And, and so the damage is know. done. Right, right. And the damage is already and done. And the other thing is doctors, there's a lot of doctors who really won't treat prediabetes until you hit diabetes, which makes zero sense whatsoever. Right. Because right. why would you wait until you have the major problem and you've already damaged your pancreas even more before you intervene and do something? Right, right. It, it's, it's like saying you have you have a nail in, in, in your tire in your car and you know that and, and it, you know, it's it's losing air. Why don't we get the tire fixed rather than just keep on wearing it and wear? You know, it's like craziness. Bad things occur. Again, this is why I wanted to, to get this out there to make sure that people understand how important it is. Why, why do you think this is occurring? Uh, more prediabetes and more prediabetes in younger people. What, what's the what the heck is going? I mean, this ninety six million. Come on. I mean, you know what? What's going? You know, what's causing this? It's a lot of things. Um, the most obvious is the preponderance of people who have developed overweight and obesity in our society, because around 75% have Mm -hmm. overweight or obesity. And that's, I mean, that's a lot. Okay. And I don't say that to, to put any stigma on it whatsoever in any way. It's just a simple fact that I don't care what you weigh, but what we're talking about here is, um, excess body fat, 
Right. So you could be a person who has an hourglass figure and a tiny waist and you wear, you have your fat in your hips and thighs and your BMI, your body mass index that we use for these kind of things could be elevated, but you could be metabolically perfectly healthy. Right. Because what we're concerned about is excess body fat and excess body fat in that midsection, that visceral fat that surrounds your organs. That's the active fat that generally is associated with higher disease risk of those lifestyle diseases, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, stroke, those things. So I think that we are looking at a population that by and large has gotten a lot heavier, which tends to cause that insulin resistance that we're talking about, you know, that excess body fat. But it's not just that. It's our stress levels. It's our lack of appropriate sleep. It's our lack of physical activity. Um, It's potentially environmental factors, chemicals, you know, in our food, in our clothing, our environment. You know, there's so many things that affect one, our, our propensity to gain weight. And genetics, obviously, is a huge factor here. So genetics, environment. And then we're talking about food and exercise. It's not just like you eat too much. That is one tiny, right, tiny piece of, of the puzzle. So it's, it's many, many things. And I think it's way too easy to just blame weight right. and, and sort of stigmatize people for what they're eating when there's so much more to it than that. And so much more to fixing it. than Right. And you know, you said stress and, 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 and the environment, and we live in a crazy stressful world. Hello. Look what year it is. Look what happened a couple of years ago. I don't even, are, are we out of the pandemic? I don't even know if we're out of the pandemic. I don't know where we are. And, and, and the stress of that things going on. So I love the way that you just said that, Lauren, in other words, don't, don't think it's, oh, I don't have, you know, I'm just not eating right. Or I'm not excited. The things going on that you can't control and the thing is going on that you can't control. And, and the one thing you can't control uh, is uh, your family. And I have diabetes in my family. And um, so, you know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. So, you know, it's something that I want to stay on top. I want, you know, my children to stay on top of too. So you, you can't, you, some things you just are out of control. Okay. So tell me, um, you know, you know, what are, you had pre-diabetes, you know, what, you know, is, is the handwriting on the wall, you say, oh, I got pre-diabetes, it's, it, I'm, I'm going to get it anyway, I'm going to get diabetes eventually, so what the heck, what's the story on that? <laughs> no, 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 definitely not, okay, first of all, um, there's so much that you can do, there, okay, I want to say it this way, because I don't want to make anybody feel badly. There are some times where your body just will not cooperate no matter what it is that you do. And that is not a failure on your part. I always tell people that taking medicine is not a failure. Taking medicine is a responsible way to work with your body to help it out along with all the other things that you're going to do because medicine, just medicine can't fix anything either. Right. You know, if you're not, if you're not taking care of all the rest of those lifestyle factors. So I honestly believe that medication is not a failure. Um, Some people just, they wait and wait and wait and they say, I'll do anything. Like, just give me six more months, six more months, six more months. I'll lose weight. I promise, you know, and, and all it does is um, put a lot of pressure on the person, but also prolong the time that their body is going through this process without really being helped. So I just want people to not feel badly about taking medicine. But, but the thing about prediabetes, the writing on the wall. Um, about 25% of people with prediabetes will develop diabetes in like a three to five year period. Mm-hmm. Okay. With 
up to about 70% ultimately um, progressing from prediabetes to diabetes. And that's a pretty big number. Um, but the point is that there's absolutely something you can do about it. And the earlier you figure it out, right. the better off you are because you can protect your pancreas more. And it's also a little bit like muscle memory that the quicker you get your blood sugar down, the more likely you are able to keep it down than if you wait until your disease state has progressed. Because that, all that inflammation, you know, is occurring that you don't know about. And I would imagine, like you just said, everybody's an individual. So if you can figure out and, and let's, let's, you know, I, I want people to buy your book and read into it and help them, but they could also work with a registered dietitian nutritionist to help to get a plan in action to what works for them. So if they can, you know, they have, find out they have prediabetes and they figure out the right diet and the right amount of exercise and the right amount of sleep and everything in the life um, that they can get to control the blood sugars, that could be the formula, right? The lifestyle formula that they could be using to not only prevent, um, you know, uh, get out of the prediabetes and maybe prevent or, you know, put off getting diabetes to weigh it down in, in the life cycle. Correct. And we're talking about lifestyle modifications can provide like a 40 to 70% reduction in risk. That's, that's wow. big. So really it, it's on us to take control of our health with health. And I right. say with health, because just by watching some influencer on TikTok does not mean that you understand everything right. about your body, about weight loss, about blood sugar, about carbs, about whatever, you know, so we really do need help from registered dietitian nutritionists, actually credentialed professionals who have extensive training uh, in this subject matter and how to help you. That's exactly correct. That's exact because you are unique, as you said. All right. But in the thing of losing weight, like what if someone, like what are the big ticket items if someone's trying to lose weight when it comes to, you know, potentially having prediabetes, what is like a, a, a better way to do it? So the thing, the thing with weight loss, I, I want to be careful to make sure that we understand that not everybody with prediabetes needs to lose weight. There's, there's mm -hmm. many, many people with prediabetes who have, you know, an actual healthy body weight, mm -hmm. um, and through genetics or whatever other metabolic issues, um, they have prediabetes. So weight loss isn't going to necessarily help them. Right. Right. Okay. Also, there's people who potentially are metabolically healthy, um, even though they weigh a little bit more or they're fat to be distributed, like we said. So if you're really trying to get weight off of your thighs, it's really probably not going to help your prediabetes. So I want to make sure, <clears throat> excuse me, that we don't stigmatize people for this. Um, right. And again, what you had said, Lauren, that it's, the lo lo you know, it's, it's like real estate, everything's location, location, location. So when it comes to being over fat, it's the, it's, it's the central, um, you know, that more of an apple shape than a pear shape that is more, yeah, right. But, so, but, but what I will say though, here's yeah. the thing that's important mm -hmm. though, when somebody has like a hundred pounds to lose, they think I'll just never be able to do this. I've been dieting my whole life. It's not even like in the cards for me, I give up, right? It's not about how much you think you have to lose. It's about how much you can lose that your body will reap the benefit from. So we're hmm. only talking a five to 7% weight reduction has, can show a really great improvement in your blood sugars. So we're not talking about 
a lot, a lot. So if a person weighs 200 pounds, that could be 10 pounds. See, that that is so uplifting. That's so promising. That's so empowering. Like, I don't have to lose 100 pounds. 10 pounds may clean up those blood glucose levels, blood sugar levels, and get you out of that you know pre-diabetes danger zone. I love that. And that's really an important message to get out to everyone, that we don't have to, you know... Uh, get down to uh, uh, what you think may be an ideal body weight, but just maybe just lose a little bit so that it corrects those blood sugars. Right. And I think the main thing is not to focus on the scale. I mean, somebody could start weightlifting and they could be gaining some muscle right? and they could be losing some fat, but the scale might not change, but metabolically they're healthier and that muscle tissue is taking up some of the glucose and their blood sugar improves, but the scale didn't change. That's why I'm so careful not right. to focus only on the scale because right. the emotional and physical health of the whole person is the priority, not the scale. And the idea is that when we make all of these other lifestyle changes that we're, that we have talked about and we'll talk about between physical activity and stress reduction and sleep and adding in healthy foods, instead of telling you what you can't eat, all of those things, those positive lifestyle changes, hopefully will bring some weight loss if that's something that your body needs to do. But the focus isn't the weight loss. Right. You know, you're right, because if pressuring yourself to lose all this weight is going to stress you out, right? And that's going to make, and that's a risk factor where, you know, you're, where you're going, you're not going any place here. So again, we want to come down and relax about that. So when it comes to eating, I, everybody has, um, uh, you know, these myths about, you know, diabetes. And so can we first talk about this first one? You know, if your blood sugars are a little bit high, that means no sugar. You can't have any sugar in your life. Can you can you explain this? Yeah, no. So like those crazy people that you're like listening to on Instagram that tell you that like sugar is toxic and all that yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, those it's people. Not. Those are the people I'm just talking it's about. <laughs> so um, no, you do not have to entirely avoid sugar, but it is wise to talk to somebody to help you meal plan and figure out how this all works into your life. Okay. So there's different kinds of sugars, number one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I hear people say I have diabetes or prediabetes, I can't eat fruit. Okay. That's not true. Number one, you should be eating fruit. Yeah. It's important to understand the difference between added sugars and naturally occurring sugars. okay? Okay. So naturally occurring sugars, like were, are there always have been there. Like, grew that way or were produced that way. So that's sugar in fruit, veggies, and plain dairy. So that would be milk, right. um, unsweetened yogurt, yogurt right. okay. things like that. Nobody added any sugar in, but it's naturally occurring. Okay. That's not what we're talking about here because the foods that have naturally occurring sugar in them bring a lot of benefits with them. When you think about the fact that let's say in strawberries or wild blueberries, they have these polyphenols, those pigments, those red and blue Mm -hmm. and purple pigments. Mm -hmm. Those antioxidant pigments have actually been shown to help to improve insulin resistance. So even though the food has carbohydrate or sugar, eating the food can actually help benefit your blood sugar, plus the amazing antioxidants and phytochemicals and anti-cancer properties and things that benefit heart disease. They're good for you. Okay. So in other words, a whole... Right. So a whole piece of fruit could satisfy that sweet tooth. It's natural sugar, not added. And maybe those phytochemicals 
in that fruit. So you're going to get two for the price of one. Here I go shopping again. You're getting two for the price of one. So to, to satisfy the sweet tooth through Mother Nature uh, is a great way to do it. Verse is, you know, the, you know, you know hang, hanging out in the candy food aisle. Right. So all sugars are not created equal is what I'm trying to say. Right. You know, so right. you've got these naturally occurring sugars and then you've got added sugars. Okay. These are broken out, broken down into what people call like unrefined, meaning right. honey, agave, maple syrup, mm -hmm. coconut sugar. For some reason, these have a health halo, mostly with the paleo thing, mm -hmm. but these have a health halo. Sugar is sugar is sugar right. is sugar. Your body doesn't care. There are minute differences in maybe the glycemic response. You might get some, it may slow, go up a little bit slower than others, or you may get tiny amounts of certain like minerals or vitamins in some of those different forms of sugar. But at the end of the day, the amount you should be eating really should, they should not be contributing largely to your diet. Right. Right. So right. right. The key is anything you add, anything you dump in your oatmeal or in your coffee or in your tea or your margarita with your agave or whatever it is that you're putting into your baking, all of that is added sugar. And that's what we're talking about that okay. we need to limit. And according to the American Heart Association, that's 24 grams per day for women, which equals six teaspoons or 36 grams per day for men, which equals nine teaspoons. And it's so easy to get that amount in packaged foods. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Really super easy that you don't realize how, how quickly that adds up. Um, even in salad dressings or marinades or sauces or crackers, you know, you don't think of certain crackers as being sweet. But when you look on the label, you're like, oh, yeah, there's high fructose corn syrup in here, you know. Um, and that's what we're talking about. Okay. So, so Lauren, so if, if we want to cut down on the added sugars, okay, we want to do that, that, and that makes all the sense in the world. What about, okay, so I want something sweet to drink. What about the sugar substitutes? Now, I know they don't affect blood glucose levels, but is that a good alternative? Sometimes. Okay. Ooh, so, um, this is a very divisive issue within our profession. I'm really not exactly sure why, but it is. Um, there's some people who think that nobody should have artificial sweeteners. They're some of the most studied compounds. You know, the, the FDA considers them generally regarded as safe um, to consume. We're talking about, so the artificial ones, there's two kinds. There's non-nutritive sweeteners we're talking about. Non-nutritive meaning they don't provide calories, right? Okay. So that's going to be both the artificial kind mm -hmm. and the naturally derived kind. So there's two, there's kind of two buckets. The first one is what we think of like of the pink and blue and yellow packets, right? So there's um, aspartame, which is the blue one. There's um, sucralose, which is the yellow one. Saccharin is the pink one. And um, I think of acesulfame potassium too, or ACE-K, which you see in a lot of like diet sodas. Mm -hmm. So those are the quote unquote artificial ones. Then you've got the naturally derived ones. So those are going to be Stevia, monk fruit, erythritol, and allulose are like the four main ones that you see. Um, there's sorbitol, mannitol that are sugar alcohols. There's Those are other ones as well. Um, the idea being that at the end of the day, you shouldn't have a ton of those either. Right. Because you're generally putting them in stuff that isn't super nutritious either. So just to say, well, it doesn't have sugar, so I'm going to drink a gallon of diet soda, like that's not going to contribute to your health in any way. Um, is it bad to have some if you want something sweet? No. 
But like anything, you don't want to over sweeten stuff with non nutritive sweeteners, because then you get used to having a lot of sweet. And like, then your palate kind of just gets saturated with the sweet, which isn't super helpful either. You want fruit to taste sweet. And if you're used to eating a ton of artificial sweeteners, fruit doesn't even taste sweet. Like when I see people sprinkling artificial sweeteners on their fruit, guys, (laughs) you know, it's a little overkill. So it sounds like you want to train, train, I should say your palate. So train it to start ratcheting down the amount of sweetness that's in your diet so that you can, you know, you know, ratchet it down. And, and otherwise we're having artificial sweetness or regular, we're still getting all that sweet, 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 sweet. And then we just want to always have that sweet. So you want to sort of ratchet that down. We actually did a whole episode in, in season um, seven of, of Spot On about, you know, sugars and added sugar. So this is really, really interesting. So I, I recommend that people go back and look at that and, and, and listen to that episode. And it's really, really fascinating of how we have ratcheted up our palate to do that when when you have a patient and they say to you um you say what do you put in your coffee and they say oh i put splenda in my coffee but if you leave it there you find out that like one person puts one splenda in their coffee and the other person puts five splendas in their coffee (laughs) now remembering that each packet of something is the sweetness equivalent of two teaspoons of sugar right right? so to me if you put one splenda or whatever it is, any, any of those in your coffee, that should probably do it for a normal person, like two, right. two teaspoons of sugar. I'm not talking about a vent, like a right. normal cup of coffee. but when you see people dump, you know, I, I've, I've seen over the years and I'm sure you have too, things that you just kind of, you know, you don't, you don't want to say anything, but like, this is not, it's just not an overall healthy habit. Forget weight, forget blood sugar. You know, I don't consider that moderation if somebody puts five splendas in there. And again, I'm going to go to that. You're just training your palate that you need this much sweetness to be sweet. And if you ration it down, you'll, you know, and you do it gradually over time, you know, one packet is going to be sweet enough, you know, and then, then, you know, we've done this all the time where you, you ratchet it down. And then when you go eat something really wicked sweet, you're like, oh, wow, because you, you, you rechange your palate. So we're going to do it. At the end of the day, too, um, I have this conversation a lot with people because it's about making choices. I personally, if I'm dealing with somebody who who needs to lose weight for their health, who um, you know needs to really monitor their carbohydrate intake, their total carbohydrate intake, and to balance it out with all their meals and snacks to control their blood sugar, I would much rather that person get their carbohydrate and sugars from natural sources, from fruit, from vegetables, from things that provide other health promoting things than to use that allotment to put, you know, sugar in their coffee, for example, or something like that. So I would much rather people very sparingly and wisely use some of those non-nutritive sweeteners so that they have room in their diet, both in their calorie allotment and also in their carbohydrate allotment to manage their blood sugar, but to be able to get some sweet, but to get those other really healthy foods in that have the carbohydrate. I would yeah. much rather that right. in a balanced way. So so we often hear about, you know, my plate and half of your plate should be fruits and vegetables, then quarter grain and quarter some protein and maybe some dairy. When your blood sugars are uh, a little bit going up, or if you have 
diabetes in your family, you want to, you know, make sure you start eating better. What would a plate look like? Like where proportionally, what should be on the plate, you know, taken, taken into effect that, you know, we don't want a lot of added sugars. We want a lot of good things. So give me what someone who is trying to better control their blood sugars, what would a plate look like? Okay. So the, my plate it really is the perfect example. If anybody wants to look it up for a visual guide, right. Um, I always keep this in my office and I show it, you know, to anybody, whether they're in my office or on zoom, because to me, like, yes. this is it, this, this portion plate. So the idea is that if half of your food volume is produce of some kind, plant foods, yeah. a quarter is some sort of carbohydrate source, ideally one that's higher in fiber, but doesn't have to have to be, but about a quarter of your, your plate. And then a quarter is some sort of protein source, ideally a lean protein, mm -hmm. um, could be a plant-based protein, could be like tofu beans, beans, like beans could, or, right. Yeah. Okay. Or tofu could right. be, um, salmon or some other lean fish or chicken or turkey could even be a lean beef. Um, but something that's a quarter of your plate. So we're not talking about a 10, 12 ounce serving of protein, right? right you know, right, we're talking right. about four ounces, right? Probably right. we'll, we'll definitely give you what you need at a meal. And then, you know, say a half to a cup of some sort of carbohydrate, whether it's, um, you know, whole wheat pasta or farro or quinoa or something that's going to be preferably a whole grain because it will slow that blood sugar absorption more. But I want to be very careful not to vilify in any way people's cultural favorite food. Absolutely. Like if somebody loves white rice and that's part of your culture, you do not need to give up. I'm going to say it again. You do not need to give up right. that white rice if it is part of something that's important to your culture. We just need to figure out how to incorporate it so that it's more balanced in the meal and that you're going to have a better blood sugar response, but you do not need to eliminate it. And that's the funniest thing. I have people all the time say, but I eat brown rice. Like, why is my blood sugar high? Like, as if the brown rice is the magic thing in society that makes the difference. When you and I both know that the, the actual difference between white rice and brown rice is really small. Right. Well, true. You know, and I'm glad you said that about the rice, you know, and if you want to, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know me because we, we're colleagues and we, we've been together forever. But, you know, that you know that I am 110% Italian. I mean, you know, you knew that already. So pasta is like, you know, and I'm sorry, I, I, the whole wheat pasta, no, that's not the pasta my grandmother gave me. I need the regular pasta. But you know what, what I do is instead of eating a platter of pasta, I do pasta in a one-to-one -one ratio. So for every cup of pasta, I have a cup of vegetables. So, so I get that, which I love the way you said that, that volume on your plate. So otherwise I could eat, you know, two cups of pasta, like no problem. But if I, if I cut it with vegetables, then I am uh, reducing the amount of carbohydrates on there, but I'm still having my al dente linguine, okay? Um, Lauren, I have to have that. That's what's so important to me. So, so good. Two that you know about resistant starch that most people yes. don't know. Tell, tell that them. Okay, so pasta, rice, and potatoes are three things that when you cook it and then cool it, it develops what's called resistant starch, meaning it's resistant to digestion. So it actually, by cooking and cooling your pasta, it will digest more slowly and therefore have a slower increase in your blood sugar after you consume it. You don't have to eat it cold, you can reheat it. Right, but right. the idea is that, you know, 
instead of just cooking it and eating it right away, if you're more concerned about it, if you, you know, do it on the leftover thing, you know, where you cool it first, you know, in the fridge, and then you reheat it when you want to eat it, you're going to have a better blood sugar response from that same food. That That is excellent. Thank you for for saying that because a lot of uh, people don't know that. And, you know, that's the whole, you know, everybody, everybody's time impaired in the kitchen. Well, what the heck? Cook once, eat twice. So, you know, cook it up some pasta and then you have it during the week and it's all done or eat it like a cold one. I love that. That's absolutely, I love it. So that's our meals. What, tell me about snacking because people often say, oh, you know, my, the better, better way to control my blood sugars is not to snack. What What's the story on that? That's very individual because it depends on your, your daily schedule. Okay. Um, I always tell people, if you're the kind of person who you eat lunch at noon and you're not having dinner until seven o'clock, you should have a snack. You know, it's really about logic and where your life is, because I don't want you coming home and shoveling in all that food really late when you're starving to death, when your body is not going to handle it as well as earlier in the day metabolically, when it comes to the way we break down and handle carbohydrates in our diet. So you know, shifting earlier is generally better for people who are watching their blood sugar. So I'd much rather you have a snack and not eat as large a dinner. Um, So snacks, the same rules apply for balancing your snack. You want some protein, you want some healthy fat, fiber, you know, and some carbohydrate, if that's what you want all mixed in together so that it tempers that rise in blood sugar, as opposed to just eating straight carbs by themselves. Can you, can you give us an idea of what that, you know, like you, this wonderful combo you should have? So the simplest idea literally is like an apple with a tablespoon of peanut butter. Perfect. You've got okay. your carbs from your apple mm-hmm. and then the peanut butter has some protein and some healthy fat and you've got the fiber in both of those. So that's going to delay that rise in blood sugar after eating the apple much more having peanut butter with it than just eating an apple by itself. And you have the sweetness. And you potentially have those phytochemicals. See, I'm learning from you. So so I can get, you know, three or four for the price of one. That's great. Give me another one. Um, like Greek yogurt with mm-hmm. berries and a couple of nuts or seeds mm-hmm. to give mm-hmm. you that healthy fat and mm-hmm. your your fiber and your protein. Um, you could do veggies and hummus. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Again, That's that hummus one. is gonna have protein from beans, it's gonna have heart healthy fats. You've got your fiber in there too. Um, you could do literally half a turkey sandwich, right? you know, on whole wheat, maybe with a smear. I like to smear healthier fats. So I like to smear either like hummus or guacamole on a sandwich as opposed to like mayo or butter, because I feel like at least you're, you're getting the fat in the mouthfeel, but it's, it's a much more nutritious and heart healthier fat, which is important for people with diabetes and prediabetes because they're predisposed to, to heart disease. Um, even something like a whole wheat tortilla with some beans and like some reduced fat cheddar cheese or something like that and making like a quick quesadilla, it doesn't have to be hard. Right, 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 right. And you can even do like I, I do. I Sometimes I'll get salsa with beans in it or add beans to salsa and I'll take a, a, a red pepper and I'll quarter it and then I have pepper scoops. And that, yeah, that's a great, I do that in the afternoon a lot because like the beans are the proteins and I, I know to get way to get more vegetables in there, in there. So sneak it in there. Okay. So snack, snacks, good. Now you said something about your margarita before. So I'm, I'm holding you to that. So what's the story with alcohol, <laughs> alcohol and your blood glucose levels? So alcohol is a little tricky. Um, only because let's remember, it's not something we're really supposed to be having a lot of anyway. Right. Um, depending on the alcohol is going to vary 
because if you're having cocktails that have sugary mixers, that's going to have a pretty negative effect on your blood sugar versus if you're having just a singular alcohol with a, like a, a seltzer or something like that, that's not going to have added sugars in there. Um, or just a five ounce glass of wine. Well, we know alcohol equivalence is really sort of important here because one drink equals a 12 ounce beer, a five ounce glass of wine, or an ounce and a half of a spirit, you know, vodka, rum, gin, whatever mixed with whatever it is that you're mixing it with. Okay. Um, so that's the alcohol equivalent as far as intoxication levels. The key is that that equals one drink, one per day for women. That's the recommended limit, right? Up to two for men, but we know really like less is good. So (laughs) we don't want to have a ton of alcohol, but the idea is that alcohol can lower blood sugar, particularly in people with diabetes. Like you have to be very careful when you drink because it can lower your blood sugar. And then if you're impaired because you're intoxicated, but your blood sugar is going low too, you can confuse those symptoms. Um, and you could end up in trouble. So the it's really important to monitor your blood sugar carefully if you have diabetes. If you and you know when is happy hour? Duh, five p.m. You know it's you know oftentimes that it, it's later in the day when it's more likely to be on an empty stomach. That's good. Lastly, what tell me how can exercise help with? We know we've heard it helps with your weight, but we know it helps with diabetes. How can it help with pre-diabetes? The same way. So exercise is in a couple of ways. Exercise is sort of like the one time where your muscles, you can clear some glucose out of your blood for your muscles to use without insulin when you're Which exercising. Is amazing. Which is so amazing. It's, so it's amazing, right? So physical activity is super important for, for that reason, because it'll help use up some of the sugar in your bloodstream. But also when you build muscle, that's metabolically active tissue that requires glucose when you're sitting doing nothing, right? So the more muscle you have, the more calories you're going to burn, the more glucose you're going to use when you're actually not exercising. Mm -hmm. So that's why strength training is really important too, because you're going to do both. Like cardio is important to keep your heart healthy, to burn calories if you're trying to lose weight too. But exercise really isn't the main factor in weight loss. It's really more of an 80, 20 thing. Like a lot of people go, well, I'm just going to exercise. So I'll lose weight. But we both know that exercise is not a great vehicle for weight loss. Right. But it's good for weight maintenance. But you're not going to lose weight just because you're exercising. The couple hundred calories you burn a few times a week is not going to make the grand difference in your weight loss efforts. It's going to make you feel good. It's going to help you emotionally, physically, all your insides are going to be better off for exercising. But the weight itself isn't going to be the, the driver there, really. You know, uh, what you just said was very interesting. And and so if you're just saying that exercise, movement, walking, running, whatever, biking, whatever, it, it allows, the exercise allows the glucose to get in the cell without the help of insulin. So that means you're not taxing your pancreas, you know, because it's going into the cell. So here's the million dollar question, Miss Lauren, should you walk or exercise after every meal or most meals? I mean, I think the best time to exercise is when you'll actually do it. And people ask me that all the time. And I say, you know what, this is a lifestyle thing, wherever you can fit it in your day, and something you'll be consistent with, and not short term, but long term, is the time to do it. And there's arguments for all sorts of things, right? If you do it first thing in the morning, people talk about fasted exercising, meaning they think you'll burn more fat because you don't have like sugar so readily available to burn because you haven't eaten anything in a long time. So people think you'll burn more fat if you do that. True, 
but you also could break down some extra muscle tissue for use also because you don't have a fuel source there. So that's questionable, right? If you do it, you know, in the afternoon, that's great. Give yourself a pick, pick me up and then you get your metabolism going. And then your dinner is like your refuel meal. So like that can work really well too. Um, if you do it after dinner, a time where you normally would be sitting on the couch when your body's already slowing down for the day and you're not really burning a lot of calories, but now you are, that could be beneficial too. So it just depends on what works for you in your day. You know, we are busy people. Not everybody's a 5 a.m. exerciser. I certainly am not one of those people. Um, and depending on the time of year, you may change that. Like it's the summer right now. I take a really long walk every night once it cools down because that's the way I want to spend my time in the summer. But in the winter, you know, I'm on my exercise equipment in the morning inside. So like right. you, you, you rotate around, you change up what you do depending on your life stage, you know, time of year, climate, whatever you're going to do is good. Right. And, and again, we all know that it doesn't have to devote 40 minutes at a, at a, at a, a clip to it. That, that actually, this whole going for like a, maybe a 15-minute walk after every meal to get 30 minutes is not a half bad thing. And I'm not saying that you have to go uh, walk in, you know, around town. You could just be moving. If you have a home office, you could be moving and doing things and, and walking. And, and you know, uh, I'm, I'm starting to, I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I'm starting to, to cut down on the Zoom meetings. And so what I'm doing is not that I'm cutting down. I mean, I'm doing walk and talks. So what I'm doing is no more zooms because I have to sit or stand. So I am saying, let's have a walk and talk. Let's have a meeting on the phone. And I'm walking around the house or in the summer, the nice way to the yard. And that's a great way to get movement in throughout your day. So, so um, you know, next time I talk to you, we're not Zooming anymore, Lauren. I'm going to call you on the phone and I'll be walking around Boston to look at that. All right. Uh, listen, my dear, you're giving me some hope here. And I, I wanted to talk about prediabetes because when I, what I thought was startling statistics got even more startling after I had you on here about what the incidence of prediabetes and again the fact that it's occurring so much in in little people in in in, in adolescents and teenagers and young adults just sparked where we have to get this message out because this is really really serious stuff. So with that, I just want to tell you, Lauren, could we please hold up your book again, please? And Lauren, she is the uh, extraordinaire dietitian here, and she has a everything easy to pre-diabetes cookbook that you can get it on Amazon or wherever. And it talks about pre-diabetes in the beginning, gives you a little uh, educational uh, information, and then uh, more importantly, the foods that do that. So again, I can't thank you enough because I think we got to get this message out and, you know, make sure, especially if you, if you had a risk factor for diabetes, to get your blood glucose checked a little bit more often, like I do, because, you know, something... Like I said, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. So I'm on, on the lookout. With that, Miss Lauren Harris-Pincus, thank you so much for being on Spot On. Thank you, Joan. It was so great to talk to you again. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program.
Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Joan Salgy Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you?